0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. Uh, instead of talking about the current version of the Mets, we're going to go into the Wayback back machine, uh, come in the, uh, the hot tub time machine, and join me in the 1970s along with uh, the Hardball Times uh, writer, Steve Trenner. Steve, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, Brian, happy to be here. Oh, happy, happy new year to you too. Well, let's state it right up front. You're not a Mets fan. You're a Giants fan, but you're a baseball fan. And I don't think you're going to have any trouble talking about the Mets, but let's talk a little bit about the Giants here for just a second. And I want to know how does San Francisco honor the, the New York heritage of the Giants?
0: It's a great question and, and in fact the Giants franchise and the San Francisco community I think in general uh, honors the New York heritage that the Giants brought quite well you know when when Horace Stoneham moved the franchise from New York to San Francisco in 57 58 he didn't just move the the player roster and the manager and coaches he moved the entire front office every single front office employee moved including secretaries they all moved across the country he moved the groundskeeper he moved the the clubhouse attendant every single employee moved all across the country to san francisco so there was a very definite sense of the fact that this was a new york business franchise that had been transplanted and they honored their new york roots very greatly and to this day uh, you know if you walk around the ballpark uh, in, in uh, whatever they call it now whatever the name of the new ballpark is AT&T uh, uh, ballpark in San Francisco it, it is, it, it, they truly honor the, they, they have pictures of John McGraw Christy Mathewson, Mel Haught, Bill Terry it's very much a, a sense that this is, this is an ongoing franchise, not something that was born in San Francisco
1: well, as a New Yorker, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And, you know, we have the exact opposite problem with the Mets. We don't honor our history. We honor the Brooklyn Dodgers, even building a stadium to to replicate what the, the Dodgers played in, in Ebbets field. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that the uh, the Giants take the high road.
0: Well, they should, they should. I mean, it's all to the better. If, if every team can honor the, the honest truth of its past, you know, every, every, Every single franchise today only uh, uh, stands on the shoulders of what came before it, and uh, uh, you know the, the 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 New York to San Francisco uh, train was a long one, and, and it, it delivered a whole lot of value. And I, I, in my estimation, the the, the San Francisco uh, uh, baseball community respects that, understands that.
1: Now, when, when I was a young kid, way back when, yeah, I was thrilled when the Mets acquired Willie Mays from the Giants. And I'd like to hear from you, what was that like for Giants fans? Um, were they happy that uh, Willie Mays got to go back to New York, or, or was it more, um, I guess, sadness for losing a franchise icon?
0: Well, I was 14 <laughs> at the time, so I was, I was definitely very, very deeply invested in it. I was sad. Uh, I can, you know, definitely. Uh, Willie Mays was my all-time favorite player, hero of all time. He, to this day, of course. Um, I was sad, but but I there was also, you know, I was 14 and I got this. I think there was a sense of uh, understanding of the financial uh, uh, predicament that the Giants were in. Uh, they couldn't afford him. Uh, he was a great player, but he had, you know, he, he brought a lot of salary with him, and they had a lot of uh, big salaries at the time, and they weren't drawing fans. <laughs> you know, even even we, uh, at that time, we could get the, the uh, equation between the lack of, of revenue coming in and the expenses going out. Uh, so there was some recognition of the fact that it had to be done but it was very sad. It was, it was a, it was a, 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 a admission of failure. It was admission of the fact that Horace Stoneham's great scheme to, to, you know, move the franchise and, and greater, greater glory in San Francisco. It had not succeeded as, 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 as well as Horace Stoneham wanted it to, it was coming to a sad end and it was a, at the very end, it was it was a sad, sad time. In that, in that, that spring of 1972, I was a I was a, a, a freshman in high school when that happened.
1: Now, I've I've always heard it said that William Mays was the New York icon. As far as the San Francisco Giants, it was always William McCovey was the big star. Is that overstating it, or do you think that there's some truth in that?
0: There's some truth to it, but it, it definitely overstates it. The, the, the San Francisco loved Mays. There was never the the whole notion that that his that they reserved uh, you know adoration for Mays because they loved DiMaggio. That's just nuts. Everybody in San Francisco loved Mays. He was hugely, hugely celebrated. Never, ever, ever was anybody. Uh, uh, in any way, not appreciative of how amazing a player Mays was, McCovey. Um, nobody, you know, nobody thought McCovey was as good as Mays. But but everybody respected McCovey, not just because he was such a, a great player, but because he was such a, a great man and, and such a, a wonderful person. Um, and he, you know, he stayed when Mays was sent back to New York. McCovey was still here, so McCovey was able to, to. Re- build upon his reputation with the San Francisco Bay Area fans when they was gone. So that's why McCovey's star rose. Uh, And McCovey, to this day, is just revered. He's loved. He he still lives in the Bay Area. He has for his life. Um, And he's revered wherever he goes. Uh, But, no, the, the, the San Francisco Bay Area never confused. Was never the the fan base was never uh, at all ever confused that uh, that McCovey was a better player than Mays. Mays is understood to be the greatest player that this uh, area has ever seen, and that's that's including his godson Barry Bonds. We all love Barry Bonds, but we all know that Willie Mays is their greatest baseball player that uh, we've been privileged to see.
1: Now the the same year that the the Mets traded for Mays a little earlier. Uh, they picked up uh, Rusty Staub from uh, the Expos, and they sent three players uh, to get him. They traded uh, Ken Singleton and Mike Jorgensen and Tim Foley. And again, as a, a young kid, he was it was great to see Rusty Staub. But you know, with the benefit of hindsight, they they kind of got uh, swindled in that deal. But they re- they also compounded the uh, the problem when they traded. Staub to the Tigers and, and got fat Mickey Lulich. So I, I guess I want to hear your point of view. Which one of those trades was worse? <laughs>
0: well, in evaluating trades, one must always have two. There's two different gauges. There's two different evaluations you need to be taken into account. One is how did the trade turn out? You know, did did this team win or did this team lose? And in, in retrospect, we can always make that evaluation. But the other uh, gauge is how did it look at the time? You know, we at the time, nobody knows how it's going to turn out. So you can sort of gauge it. At the time, did this seem like a good trade, regardless of how it turned out? Was this a good or bad trade on Samaric at the time? Um, so the, the Mets trade of Stobbed, of the. Singleton, Jorgensen, and Foley for Staub to the Expos in 72. At the time, you could kind of uh, find that the match needed a a big hitter. They had some some organizational depth, but they lacked their big star. So here we go. Let's get Staub to to have this be a guy. Um, At the time, you could sort of see it. Uh, Of course, in retrospect, it turned out very badly that Singleton turned out to be at least as good, if not a better hitter than Staub. And, you know, you throw in Jorgensen and Foley, who were both very good players for many, many years. It was clearly a bad trade in its outcome for the Mets. Um, but you can kind of justified at the time, uh, based on the Mets situation. They were they were they wanted to win it big. They were they had they were frustrated after having uh, won the, the the series in '69, are frustrated after having come close in '70, 70, '71, and not won the division. So they, you know, you can kind of justify it there, but clearly it turned out badly. Uh, once they had Staub for a few years, and he was real good. Staub played as well as the Mets could have expected to to play. Uh, but you know, a few years later, it was it was it was. I think it was time to deal Staub. I don't I don't fault him for trading him that that point at all. I think getting Lolich in return was a bad idea in that if you're trying to trade a former star, a, a good veteran player who's still got some value in him, in your situation, you trade him for, for some values, for some young value. You trade him for a couple of prospects. You don't trade him for yet another former star who, you know, has had some great success behind him and may still contribute it made no sense. It was pointless. There was no reason to trade stop for Lulich. And as just kept Staub. Um, so you're asking which trade was worse. I'd say the second trade was worse.
1: Now you brought up uh, the idea that you have to look at a trade two different ways. One, how it ultimately worked out, but also how it was viewed at, at the time of the trade. And the one thing that I would say for the second trade though, the Lulich trade, the Mets in 75 had three really, really good starters, and then their fourth starter really let them down. And I think that was the reason that they didn't make the the playoffs in 75. So they had that feeling that they needed a a competent fourth starter. And the other half of the equation being that they had uh, Mike Vail, who they had high, high, high hopes for, and they thought that they could uh put Vale into stop spot and then Lolich would step in and be the the fourth starter that they needed so badly and even though the fans hated Mickey Lolich he didn't pitch that bad and if they had had him in 75 they might have made the playoffs so i i would say that i think that the 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 current view is more supportive of the 75 deal than the 72 deal
0: Fair enough, I hear what you're talking about in terms of, you know, just just based on the needs of the team at the time. Um, But I would still say that any time a team uh, trades a three-for-one, you really, really have to be putting a whole lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, expected value upon that one. The, The one has to really be very special. And Rusty Staub um, was a really fine player, a good offensive player, a competent defender, a durable guy. Of course, once you came to the Mets, he started to get hurt, but that's <laughs> just the Mets, um, you know. So, you know, he was a good player. I, I, I don't know. Three for one for Staub—that's that's that's a bit much. Uh, and of course, the, the the killer is that Singleton. Turned out to be Rusty Staub version number two, right? He's basically the same player. He's, he's he can play right field because he can throw, but he can't run at all. He's uh, a hitter who who draws a lot of walks. Who hits for a good average with moderate power. He can go on for a long time because that kind of guy just you know he doesn't ever get any different than he was when he was 25. He's 35. He's the same guy. <laughs> Ken Singleton turned out to be the same guy they traded for when they traded for Russell Staub.
1: Yeah. And if you go back and look at Singleton's 71 season, he was actually quite good. And I forget the, the exact number of plate appearances, but it was over 300. So it wasn't like a, uh, a, just a, a September call up. He had uh, extensive playing time in 71 and uh, it, it's, it's really tough to look at that in, in hindsight. They both stink. That that's my, my ultimate, uh, judgment, uh, <laughs> on those two trades. Now let, let's switch to a, a, a guy that I have to say is not my favorite. And he, he has a great reputation and that's uh, catcher, Jerry Grody, who uh, was, was often called the, the second best uh, defensive catcher in the national league behind Johnny bench. So do you have any feel for how modern metrics would have treated uh, Jerry Grody as a defensive player?
0: I'm not uh, a uh, expert on modern defensive defensive metrics by any means. Please don't uh, don't think that I'm coming from any position of authority here. But from what I understand, from my my limited comprehension of the, the modern defensive metrics, uh, they treat Jerry Grody quite well. They think he's a, a, an excellent defensive catcher. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's that's my reading of the of the numbers, um, and that is in is in complete uh, accordance with my uh, observance of him when he played. Uh, Grody was not big, uh, even by the center of the time. He's not a big guy for catcher, but he was really quick. He was really agile, an uh, uh, athletic guy who was not only good at blocking pitches in the dirt because he was so quick, but he was, he was so quick off his feet. He was good at retreating balls that got away you know, from the catcher. He was good on pop-ups because he was so agile. Um, his arm was, was good. It wasn't really a big arm, but it was good. It was accurate to release. He was, he was better than average at throwing out base runners. Grody um, was really, really good defensively. You know how was he comparable to Bench? No, nobody, nobody in the league was comparable to Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench was was a yard ahead of every other player in the in the in baseball uh, during the time. But uh, of the of the others around him, um, Grody was as good as anybody else. Grody was Grody was a really really good defensive catcher.
1: All right, well, you, my favorite player was Duffy Dyer, so I wanted to hear somebody say, oh, Jerry Grody, he was overrated. So since you didn't <laughs> say that, we're going to quickly move on to the next question. And uh, that, that's uh, another one of, of my favorites, Felix Mian. And, of course, everyone remembers that uh, he choked up about halfway on the bat and uh, hit a lot, of, lot a lot of line drives and, and dinks over the infielder's heads. And and one thing that I've always wondered about is if we were somehow to uh, transport Mian into the 21st century where we have all of the defensive alignments and shifts that we do today, do you think that teams would have played their their outfield shallower to take advantage of his lack of power?
0: That's a really, really good question. I guess I'll just first say, you know, know, they played him pretty goddamn shallow at the time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it wasn't
0: it wasn't like they respected his power then. Uh so they shaded him way, way in. And yeah, you're right, he still was able to sink those little Texas leaguers in there. Um I don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference, however, how you position your defense against a hitter like Neon because yeah, he hit some loopers. But mostly what Neon hit, probably 80% of it—of uh, what Neon hit was ground balls. That was his whole game, was to put the ball on the ground. And he hit, you know, if he, if he hit the ball hard and threw a hole, he got he got through for a single, and that's what he was all about. And so it doesn't matter how you position the outfield if the guys hit the ball on the ground. It is also fair to say that in Neon's time, uh, there were a lot more artificial turf infields or fields than there are today, and, and generally speaking, at least League, particularly, uh, the outfield dimensions were bigger. So uh, for both of those reasons, outfielders couldn't bunch in as close as they can now with a grass outfield and with uh, with closer uh, power alleys because if the ball gets behind you in the old days, if the ball gets behind you on that artificial turf, it's a triple. A, a single becomes a triple right away. And, and and oftentimes a triple becomes an inside the Parker, so you have to make sure that you, the ball can't get through the gap. And we have in order to get make sure the ball doesn't get through the gap. You have to back up ten feet. When you back up ten feet, well, there comes a looper in front of you. So, you know, in in a sense, the outfielders in those days were were forced to play a little bit deeper. But still, a, a, a hitter like that, he's either the ball's gonna find a hole or it's not, <laughs> and unless. The one thing you could do against neon, the one possible radical defensive shift that you might try nowadays, would be to instead of playing three outfielders, play two, and to play the third outfielder as a as a buck short, as a as a as a rover somewhere behind uh, second base, and just basically have a fifth infielder. That might be the the most effective strategy to uh, to uh, stop those ground balls from getting through.
1: I would love to see something like that. You know, occasionally we'll see that um, extra inning game bases loaded type of thing where they, they bring in the the fifth infielder, but generally you, you'd never see that in the third inning of a zero, zero game or, or any other, you know, normal time in a, in a baseball game. And I guess the reason that I was asking the question about Mian is the, the Mets have uh, an almost similar type player in the minor leagues, uh, uh, Luis Guillorme, who's, great defensive player but has virtually no power. I think on the twenty to eighty scale his power would rate a nineteen. And you know (laughs) the big question is will he be able what will Will he be able to at least have the threat of delivering some type of power so that the 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 pitchers will be at least a little bit afraid of them? And you know the first guy you think of in like that is is Felix Mian. So gonna be real curious to see how uh, Guillerme, who's one of the the Mets' top prospects, how how he'll turn out. I mean, he had a very nice year in double-A last year, and it'll be interesting to see if if he can make it to the majors and have the ball find the holes, like you said happened for uh, Mian. But uh, let's go back to uh, a pitcher from the 60s and the 70s, and and that's Jerry Kuzman. Um, And, of course, it's always Seaver and Kuzman. He always plays second fiddle, it seems, and and not just to his more celebrated teammate, but he also finished second in, in two big races. He, he lost the Rookie of the Year in '68 in to Johnny Bench, and the Cy Young Award to, I believe it was Randy Jones in '76. And um, should he have won either of those awards? Do you think?
0: No, and there's no, no, uh, no slight to Jerry Kuzman to say so. Uh, Kuzman was a terrific player, a tremendous pitcher. Um, but you know, second fiddle is 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 a, a position. And there's no there's no shame in it. There, there's no there's there's no shame in being not as good as Tom Seaver. That that's that's okay. Uh, you know, being not quite as good as one of the greatest pitchers of all time is is not a bad place to be. Um, should he have won the Rookie of the Year award in '68? No. Uh, as great as as Kuzman was in '68. I remember, it well, he shut out the Giants in opening day, or I think it was opening year, opening series in sixty-eight and suddenly became a, a, a name. He was terrific that year. He won 19 games. He was in the top 10 in ERA. He was, he was a really, really great pitcher. Uh, Johnny Bench was, was otherworldly. Johnny Bench just transformed the game. Johnny Bench was stunning. Johnny Bench in 1968, this is the year of the pitcher. This is the year when all the batting statistics are way down. Johnny Bench, as a barely 20-year-old rookie in 1968, uh, he caught 156 games. He hit 40 doubles, 40 doubles. The last catcher in, major leagues, in the major leagues who hit 40 doubles since, or before Johnny Bench was Mickey Cochran in 1930. <laughs> That's 38 years. Like I understand, it's doubles. I Understand, it's just kind of a you know a little bit of a, of a specific endpoints thing. But think about that. Johnny Bench was stunning. He was doing things that no catcher had done for 38 years. That's just in his doubles category. His defense was stunning. His arm was just just blew everybody away. So Johnny Bench was he he. He was the rookie player in nineteen sixty eight. Jerry Kuzman, there is no shame in being not quite as good as Johnny Bench, if not the greatest catcher of all time, you know, in the top three or four consideration of greatest catchers of all time. It's no shame to be not quite as good as Johnny Bench. In seventy six, uh the signing award a little closer call. You you could you could certainly make a case for Kuzman over over Randy Jones, but Kuzman pitched two hundred and forty seven innings. Randy Jones pitched three hundred and fifteen. That's that's seventy innings or sixty eight innings. That that's a big, big difference. You know, their rate stats are, are comparable. Other than that, they're about the same pitcher. Sixty eight more innings, that's a big, big deal for a starting pitcher. Uh, Randy Jones in the mid-70s, 75, 76 was, was, uh, you know, if he kept that rate up for any number of years, Randy Jones would be a Hall of Famer. He got hurt and he didn't. But Jones at that time was an elite, elite pitcher. There is no shame in being not quite as good as 1975, 76, Randy Jones. So, poor Jerry Kuzman, yeah, second fiddle, but, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty good position to, 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 uh, to have uh, uh, achieved for yourself. So no harm there.
1: I know at the time they were talking about that Seaver beat out Jones for the Cy Young award in 75. And there was a lot of people who thought that the, it was the name value of Seaver carrying him to the award over the, the better season by Jones and 76 was kind of like the payback for that. That maybe Jones should have won it in '75 and Kuzman should have won it in '76. So at least uh, Randy Jones got the one Cy Young award that he should have, but it just ended up uh, uh, left leaving Kuzman holding the bag.
0: Yeah, that, that's New York media spin. Uh, you
1: know, <laughs>
0: sometimes, sometimes the the, the the nobody from San Diego actually is better.
1: All right. Um uh, let's let's talk about another uh, Mets pitcher from that era and and that's uh, Nolan Ryan and uh obviously is the the second they traded him he blossomed into one of the the top pitchers in the game. Uh and again the 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 New York uh, speculation was that is going to the other league where they would call the high strike and uh, that really helped propel Ryan forward. Do you think that uh, if Ryan had stayed with the Mets, at least until free agency came around, that he would have had a Hall of Fame career? Well,
0: of course, counterfactuals are impossible to prove. We never, we'll never never know. Um, but, uh, you know, Nolan Ryan became a Hall of Famer not just because he turned it around at the age of 25 and started to, you know, get... get make, all two become strike two and, and turn the, the count around. Um, but because he lasted until he was 40-something, he went on and on forever. And I don't think whether the Mets gave up on him or not would have had much impact on that. Nolan Ryan's real achievement wasn't just how, how terrific he was in the mid-70s with the Angels, but how amazing he was for 15, 20 years beyond that. His incredible longevity, his incredible durability, um, you know, those things are independent of whether the Mets would have let him go or not. Um, th- that said, there are a whole lot of pitchers in history who had a similar uh, situation to Nolan Ryan's with the Mets. A young kid who can throw the ball so hard, is fastball is amazing, everybody's, everybody's throwing him, but he can't throw a strike. You know, there's a lot of those guys. Uh, Rex Barney in New York with the the Brooklyn Dodgers is is a famous one. You know, or or guys who have a a few years of success and then get flame out. You know, Sam McDowell comes to mind. Um, It's not just to have that immediate success. It's to sustain it for 15, 20 years the way Ryan did. That's what's the historically great thing about Nolan Ryan. Not his fastball. It's his, it's his, it's his longevity. Uh, so, to that extent, it doesn't matter whether the Mets would have kept him or not. He would have done that. You know, I think, I think that was, that was, that belongs to Nolan Ryan. He, he earned that, regardless of what team was employing him.
1: Well, we have about a minute left, and and I want to ask about uh, Gil Hodges. Uh, pretty much um, as long as I can remember, there's been people making the case for Gil Hodges being in the Hall of Fame. And what do you think on that question? Does Gil Hodges belong in the Hall of Fame? He's
0: close. It's not It's not an obvious yes or no question. He's close. He's on the borderline. I think he's just below it. Um, you have to combine both his playing career and his managerial career, which are both impressive. Here's what I think about Gil Hodges. Had Gil Hodges not played first base, but instead played third base, where he probably would have been excellent. He had the arm for it. He, he had the agility for it. He was a terrific defender. He's the best defensive player in the world at first base. If Hodges plays third base, yes, he is a Hall of Famer, hands down, no doubt, no doubt about it. Because he played first base, it limits the value of his offensive contribution. I just, you think, I think he falls just a little bit
1: short. Well, Steve, we are all out of time. I, I love going back in memory lane and, and talking about uh, some of these guys that uh, don't get a whole lot of publicity uh, in, in today's game. And I just want to thank you for uh, joining us and, and uh, sharing your opinions from the wrong coast. <laughs>
0: My great pleasure, Brian. Anytime. I'll be happy to do it.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Please tune in again next week, uh, Wednesday night at 11 o'clock Eastern time, and uh, we'll be joined by Mets 360 writer John Fox. Thanks again for tuning in, and good night, and goodbye.